the old Peabody Pew, Chapter 1. Edgewood, like all the other villages along the banks of the Saco, is full of sunny slopes and leafy hollows. There are little rounded, green-clad hill-locks that might, like their scriptural sisters, skip with joy, and there are grand rocky hills tufted with gaunt pine trees, these leading the eye to the splendid heights of a neighbor state. Where snow-crowned peaks tower in the blue distance, sweeping the horizon in a long line of majesty, Tory Hill holds its own among the others for peaceful beauty and fair prospect, and on its broad, level summit sits the white-painted Orthodox Meeting House. This faces a grassy common where six roads meet as if the early settlers had determined that no one should lack salvation because of a difficulty. The old church has had a dignified and fruitful past, dating from that day in 1761, when young Paul Cawthon received his call to preach at a stipend of 15 pounds sterling a year answering that never having heard of any uneasiness among the people about his doctrine or manner of life he declared himself pleased to settle as soon as might be judged convenient but that was a hundred and fifty years ago and much has happened since those simple strenuous old days the chastening hand of time has been laid somewhat heavily on the town as well as on the church some of her sons have marched some seeking better fortunes have gone westward, others weary of village life, the rocky soil and rigors of farm work have become entangled in the noise and competition, the rush and strife of cities. When the sexton rings the bell nowadays on a Sunday morning, it seems to have lost some of its old-time strength, something of its hope and courage. But it still rings, and although the Davids and Solomons, the Matthews, Marks, and Pauls of former congregations have left few descendants to per perpetrate their labors, it will go on ringing as long as there is a Tabitha, a Dorcas, a Lois, or a Eunice left in the community. This sentiment had been maintained for a quarter of a century, but it was now especially strong as the old Tory Hill Meeting House had been undergoing for several years, more or less, extensive repairs. In point of fact, the still stronger word, improvements, might be used with impunity, though whenever the Dorcas society, being female, and therefore possessed of notions regarding comfort and beauty, suggested any serious changes, the finance committees, which were inevitably male in their composition, generally disapproved of making any impious alterations in a tabernacle, chapel, temple, or any other building used for purposes of worship. The majority in these august bodies asserted that their ancestors had prayed and sung there for a century and a quarter, and what was good enough for their ancestors was entirely suitable for them. Besides, the community was becoming less and less prosperous, and church-going was growing more and more lamentably uncommon, so that even from a business standpoint, any sums expended upon decoration by a poor and struggling parish would be worse than wasted. In the particular year, under discussion in this story, the valiant and progressive Mrs. Jeremiah Burbank was the president of the Dorcas Society, and she remarked privately and publicly that if her ancestors liked a smoky church, they had a perfect right to the enjoyment of it. 
but that she didn't intend to sit through meeting on winter Sundays with her white ostrich feather turning gray and her eyes smarting and watering for the rest of her natural life, whereupon this being in a business session, she then and there proposed to her already hypnotized constituents ways of earning enough money to build a new chimney on the other side of the church. An awe-stricken community witnessed this beneficent act of vandalism, and finding that no thunderbolts of retribution descended from the skies, greatly relished the change. If one or two aged persons complained that they could not sleep as sweetly during sermon time in the now clear atmosphere of the church, and that the parson's eye was keener than before, why that was a mere detail and could not be avoided, what was the loss of a little sleep compared with the discoloration of Mrs. Jers Burbank's white ostrich feather and the smarting of Mrs. Jer Burbank's eyes? A new furnace followed, the new chimney, in due course, and as a sense of comfort grew, there was opportunity to notice the lack of beauty. Twice in sixty years had someone well-to-do summer parishioner painted the interior of the church at his own expense, but although the roof had been many times reshingled, it had always persisted in leaking, so that the ceiling and walls were disfigured by unsightly spots and stains and streaks. The question of shingling was tacitly felt to be outside the feminine domain, but as there were five women to one man in the church membership, the feminine domain was frequently obliged to extend its limits into the hitherto unknown. Matters of tarring and waterproofing were discussed in and out of season, and the very school children imbibed knowledge concerning lapping, overlapping, and cross-lapping, and first and second quality of cedar shingles. Miss Lobelia Brewster, who had a rooted distrust of anything done by Mayor Man, created strife by remarking that she could have stopped the leak in the belfry tower with her red flannel petticoat, better than the Milktown man with his newfangled rubber sheeting, and that the last shingling could have been more thoroughly done by a female infant babe, whereupon the person criticized retorted that he wished Miss Lobelia Brewster had a few infant babes to put on the job. He'd like to see him try. Meantime, several male members of the congregation, who at one time or another had sat on the roof during the hottest of the dog days, to see that shingling operations were conscientiously and skillfully performed, were very pessimistic as to any satisfactory result ever being achieved. The angle of the roof, what they call the pitch, they say that that's always been wrong, announced the secretary of the Dorcas in a business session. Is it that kind of pitch that the Bible says you can't touch without being defiled? If not, I vote that we unshingle the roof and alter the pitch. This proposal came from a sister named Maria Sharp, who had valiantly offered the year before to move the smoky chimney with her own hands if the men folks wouldn't. But though the incendiary suggestion of altering the pitch was received with applause at the moment, subsequent study of the situation proved that such a proceeding was entirely beyond the modest means of the society. Then there arose an ingenious and militant carpenter in a neighboring village who asserted that he would shingle the meeting house roof for such and such a sum and agree to drink every drop of water that would leak in afterward. 
This was felt by all parties to be a promise attended by extraordinary risks, but it was accepted nevertheless. Miss Lobelia Brewster remarked that the rash carpenter, being already married, could not marry a Dorcas anyway, and even if he died, he was not a resident of Edgewood, and therefore could be more easily spared, and that it would be rather exciting just for a change to see a man drink himself to death with rainwater. The expected tragedy never occurred, however, and the spared Shingler fulfilled his promise to the letter, so that before many months the Dorcas Society proceeded with incredible exertion to earn more money, and the interior of the church was neatly painted and made as fresh as a rose. With no smoke, no rain, no snow, nor melting ice to defile it, the good old landmark that had been pointing its finger heavenward for over a century would now be clean and fragrant for years to come, and the weary sisters leaned back in their respective rocking chairs and drew deep breaths of satisfaction. These breaths continued to be drawn throughout an unusually arduous haying season, until in fact a visitor from a neighboring city was heard to remark that the Tory Hill Meeting House would be one of the best preserved and pleasantest churches in the whole state of Maine, if only it were suitably carpeted. This thought had secretly occurred to many a Dorcas in her hours of pie-making, preserving, or cradle-rocking, but had been promptly extinguished as flagrantly extravagant and altogether impossible. Now that it had been openly mentioned, the contagion of the idea spread, and in a month every sort of honest machinery for the increase of funds had been set in motion, harvest suppers, pie sociables, old folks concerts, apron sales, and as a last resort, a subscription paper for the church floor measured hundreds of square yards. And the carpet committee announced that a good in grain could not be purchased, even with the church discount, for less than 97 cents a yard. The Dorcases took out their pencils, and when they multiplied the surface of the floor by the price of the carpet per yard, each Dorcas attaining a result entirely different from all the others, there was a shriek of dismay especially from the secretary who had included in her mathematical operation certain figures in her possession representing the cubical contents of the church and the fending pitch of the roof thereby obtaining a product that would have dismayed a croesus Time sped and efforts increased, but the Dorcases were at length obliged to clip the wings of their desire and content themselves with carpeting the pulpit and pulpit steps, the choir, and the two aisles, leaving the floor and the pews until some future year. How the women had cut and contrived and matched that hardly bought red and grain carpet in the short December afternoons that ensued after its purchase, so that having failed to be ready for Thanksgiving, it could be finished for the Christmas festivities. They were sewing in the church, and as the last stitches were being taken, Maria Sharp suddenly ejaculated in her impulsive fashion, wouldn't it have been just perfect if we could have had the pews repainted before we laid the new carpet? It would indeed, the president answered, but it will take us all winter to pay for the present improvements without any thought of fresh paint. If only we had a few more men folks to help along, or else none at all was Lobelia Brewster's suggestion. It's having so few that keeps us all stirred up. If there weren't what wants an any anywheres, we'd have women deacons and carpenters and painters and get along first rate. 
for somehow the supply of women always holds out, same as it does with caterpillars and flies and grasshoppers. Everybody laughed, although Maria Sharp asserted that she was one was not willing to be called a caterpillar simply because there were too many women in the universe. I never noticed before how shabby and scarred and dirty the pews are, said the minister's wife as she looked at them reflectively. I've been thinking all the afternoon of the story about the poor old woman and the lily, and Nancy Wentworth's clear voice broke into the discussion. Do you remember someone gave her a stalk of Easter lilies, and she set them in a glass pitcher on the kitchen table? After looking at them for a few minutes, she got up from her chair and washed the pitcher until the glass shone. Sitting down again, she glanced at the little window. It would never do. She had forgotten how dusty and blurred it was, and she took her cloth and burnished the panes. Then she scared the table, then the floor, then blackened the stove before she sat down to her knitting, and of course the lily had done it all, just by showing in its whiteness how grimy everything else was. The minister's wife, who had been in Edgewood only a few months, looked unmarinly at Nancy's bright face, wondering that five and thirty years of life, including ten of school teaching, had done so little to, to merit serenity. The Lily story is as true as the gospel, she exclaimed, and I can see how one thing has led you to another in making the church comfortable. But my husband says that two coats of paint on the pews would cost a considerable sum. How about cleaning them? I don't believe they've had a good hard washing since the flood. The suggestion came from Deacon Miller's wife to the president. They can't even be scrubbed for less than fifteen or twenty dollars, for I thought of that and asked Mrs. Simpson yesterday, and she said twenty cents a pew was the cheapest she could do it for. We've done everything else, said Nancy Wentworth, with a twitch of her thread. Why don't we scrub the pews? There's nothing in the Orthodox creed to forbid it, is there? Speaking old creeds, and her old Mrs. Sargent paused in her work. Elder Ransom from our... Acreville stopped with us last night, and he tells me they recite the Euthanasian Creed every few Sundays in the Episcopal Church. I didn't want him to know how ignorant I was, but I looked up the word in the dictionary. It means easy death, and I can't see any sense in that, though it's a terrible long creed, the elder says, and if it's any longer in iron, I should think anybody might easy die learning it. I think the word is Anthanasian, ventured the minister's wife. Elder Ransom's always plumb full of doctrine, asserted Miss Brewster, pursuing the subject. For my part, I'm glad he preferred Acreville to our place. He was so busy being a minister, he never got around to being a... When he used to come to sociables and picnics, always looking kind of like the potato blight, I used to think how complete he'd be if he had a folding pulpit under his coattails. They make folding beds nowadays, and I suppose they could make folding pulpits if there was a call. I hope there won't be, exclaimed Mrs. Sargent, and the elder never said much of anything either, though he was always preaching. Now your husband, Miss Baxter, always has plenty to say after you think he's all through. There's water in his well when the others is all dry. But how about the pews, interrupted Mrs. Burbank. I think Nancy's idea is splendid, and I want to see it carried out. We might make it a picnic, bring our luncheons and work all together, let every woman in the congregation come and scrub her own pew. Some are too old, others live at too great a distance, and the minister's wife sighed a little. Indeed, most of those who once owned the pews or sat in them seemed to be dead, or going away to live in busier places. 
I've no patience with him galvanating over the earth. And here Lobelia rose and shook the carpet threads from her lap. I shouldn't want to live in a livelier place than Edgewood seems, though. We wash and hang out Mondays, iron Tuesdays, cook Wednesdays, clean house and mend Thursdays and Fridays, bake Saturdays, and go to meeting Sundays. I don't hardly see how they can do any more than that in Chicago. Never mind if we have lost members, said the indomitable Mrs. Burbank. The members we still have left must work all the harder. We'll each clean our own pew, then take a few of our neighbors, and then hire Mrs. Simpson to do the wainscoting and floor. Can we scrub Friday and lay the carpet Saturday? My husband and Deacon Miller can help us at the end of the week. All in favor, manifested by the usual sign. It is a vote. There never were any contrary-minded when Mrs. Jer Burbank was in the chair. Public sentiment in Edgewood was swayed by the Dorcas Society, but Mrs. Burbank swayed the Dorcases themselves as the wind sways the wheat. Thank you for listening to another episode of Baker Soft Story Classic. Thank you.